Let's turn to the book of Romans, chapter 2, and we'll begin reading with verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having a law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. I'd like to speak with you this morning concerning the subject of guilt and the conscience. Guilt and the conscience. What I'd like to do before we look into the Bible, I'd like to take just a few moments to present to you how Shakespeare dealt with these subjects in his great tragedy, Macbeth. Now, I'm going to read some sections from Macbeth, and you'll quickly realize that Shakespeare would not have hired me. (laughs) But hopefully we can get a feel for this thing of guilt and the conscience, because Shakespeare, Shakespeare had a good grasp of, I think, how the conscience can affect a person. The plot of Macbeth revolves around Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth, who were scheming to take over the throne of Scotland. They had a very sinful ambition, and it was so sinful that they would kill in order to bring that about. So they secretly killed the king of Scotland. Macbeth stabs him, and uh, his wife, at various points, is involved in this. In fact, he, he becomes somewhat scared of the whole thing, and she's the one that eggs him on and keeps him in, in terms of continuing to go through with their plot to kill uh, the king. He, uh, he's bothered by his conscience early on, and she makes light of these guilt feelings, uh, saying that it's easy to cleanse their bloody hands once the deed is done. But as the play progresses, Lady Macbeth has these guilt feelings, has a guilty conscience, and in fact, it tortures her more than it did him at first. She imagines that she can see blood on her hands. She was part of the, the murder, and uh, they got both got bloody hands in this, and it bothered them both. But she says, well, we can deal with that. We'll just cleanse our hands. Eventually, her evil deeds leads her to insomnia and then madness and eventually suicide. But I want to read just some of these, a few sections here to you. 
after Macbeth has stabbed the king. He says this, Methought I heard a voice cry, Sleep no more. Macbeth does murder sleep. The innocent sleep. He goes on and talks about what a blessing it is for the innocent to be able to sleep. But Macbeth does murder sleep. And then he goes, a little bit later, he's thinking about the blood that was on his hands. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hands? Well, Lady Macbeth says, that's not a problem. She says, a little water clears us of the deed. Well, you can get this blood off real easy. A little water clears us of the deed. How easy it is then. But as you go on through the play, you see that Lady Macbeth actually becomes more troubled than Macbeth himself was. Her conscience is bothering her. And uh, she can't sleep. She's actually sleepwalking and talking, speaking in her sleep. And you hear her mumble things like, yet here's a spot, yet here's a spot. A little bit later, and I'm paraphrasing this. If you know the play, you'll know why I paraphrased it. She says, out Cursed spot. I changed that. Out, cursed spot. Out. Who would have thought the old man to have so much blood in him? See, she's, she's thinking back. She's already cleaned her hands. They've washed their hands. But she can't get rid of the spot internally, you see. Yeah. So they call a doctor in to try to help Lady Macbeth to sleep and get rid of her insomnia and her rantings about these spots. And the doctor says this. He says, Foul whisperings are abroad. Unnatural deeds do breed unnatural troubles. Infected minds to their death pillows will discharge their secrets. More needs she the divine than the physician. That's quite a line, isn't it? More needs she the divine than the physician. Macbeth later talks to the doctor and tries to say, can't you do something for my wife to cure her of these rantings and this sleepwalking? Here's what Macbeth says. Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased, pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, Raise out the written troubles of the brain with some sweet oblivious antidote. Cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. Don't you have an antidote? Don't you have some potion, some pill you can give her? Well, the doctor says, no, I can't. She's going to have to deal with this herself. A wiser doctor than many today who would have some pill or potion for a guilty conscience. And then as we get on towards the end of the play, we find that Lady Macbeth has killed herself. How does Macbeth deal with that? Well, this is an amazing, amazingly modern way of dealing with this whole area of guilt and a guilty conscience. 
he says this. These are some of the famous, most famous lines in the play. Trying to analyze this whole thing. What does Macbeth say? He says, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. What's he saying? He's saying, well, one way of dealing with this whole thing of guilt is just to say there's no meaning. There's no meaning to life whatsoever. Well, that's an amazingly modern way of dealing with sin and guilt. Life has no meaning, therefore nothing matters. We're here briefly, we die, and our life has no more significance. No significance. What that says to me It shows the amazing depths that people will go to in order to deaden a guilty conscience. They will kill themselves and murder meaning just so they don't have to deal with a guilty conscience. I said this was a tragedy, and that is a tragedy. That's a tragedy that that would be the way anyone would deal with guilt. Well, that's just a play. But these things are realities that take place every day. As we look at a play like Macbeth today, many would say that that's that's the way people viewed this thing of conscience back when Shakespeare wrote. But Today we know that conscience is really nothing that should bother us very much. It's just an instinct for self-preservation, plus a little respect for the taboos and the social traditions of our culture, things we feel strongly about because we were taught them as young children, but there's nothing really there of any true moral guilt before a holy God. That's the way conscience is dealt with today very often. It's just a guilt feeling that you're having that needs to be dealt with. If it's extreme, maybe you do need some drugs. Maybe you do need to see a doctor. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that our conscience is a precious gift from God. Part of being made in the divine image. Because God has created us as moral beings who are personally accountable to him and created us for fellowship with him, he's given us this built-in moral consciousness. And that's what Paul's talking about here. 
in this section in Romans 2 that we read. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Paul's saying that people all over the world, even those that don't have the Bible, the moral law, the written moral law that God gave the Jewish people, still had a law written on their heart. And their conscience was witness to that. Paul declares in this section and and other places in the scriptures that this thing we call conscience is both innate and universal. Something that God has put in every man, every person. It is one of the most notable features of being made in the image of God. The fact that we are conscious of good and evil, of right and wrong. Since God is a holy God, he's made us moral creatures, moral creatures. And the conscience is like an internal moral compass to point us in the right direction and telling us when we're going in the wrong direction. He's put within us that innate imperative to choose the right and to beware of the moral guilt that will be there if we choose the wrong. Conscience is a moral consciousness bringing with it a moral responsibility. We know there's things that we should do and we know there's things we shouldn't do. Conscience has a before and after function. Before events happen, it is a guide admonishing us to do the right and to avoid the evil. And after we've done something, it acts as a judge either commending our obedience to God's voice or judging our disobedience when we've done something wrong. That's what we call a bad conscience or a guilty conscience. And because we've all sinned, there is a, this universal problem with guilt. Look around the world. Why are there all these religions? Well, this is the reason. Man has a conscience. People have a conscience. And they go against it. And there's a sense of guilt. So they have to deal with it somehow. People try in various ways to deal with that guilt. Apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, people try to stifle or deaden the voice of conscience. But this is very important. Trying to deaden the voice of conscience is a dangerous thing. The conscience is there to keep us from sinning, or if we have sinned, to bring us a sense of guilt so that we will look to Christ for forgiveness. It's also there to defend us and commend us when we've done the right thing. As we'll see here in a little bit, it's not always correct in this life. But I think what Paul's saying here in these verses is that when we stand before God on that great day and the secrets of men's hearts are revealed, I think we'll see clearly every time we've obeyed our conscience And every time we've gone against the conscience that God has given us throughout our lives. That's what he says here. He says, their conscience 
bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men's heart through Christ Jesus. I don't know if you're obeying your conscience today. Sometimes you're even conflicted on that. But there's going to be a day when those things are all going to be clear every time you've gone against what God is showing you. Every time you've done the right thing, it's all going to be there on that day when God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So we have this built-in moral compass to help us to know right from wrong and good from evil. But there is a problem. We live in a fallen world where we all have been affected by sin. And one of the results of this is that our conscience gets distorted. If you take the example of a literal compass, we know that a magnet brought near a compass will distort its accuracy. Actually, I was going to do this for the children today, and I decided not to, but I'll just... If I hold a magnet up here, or a compass up here... I can tell which way north is very easily. But there's things that can keep that from giving me the right direction. One thing, if I tilt it wrong, if I spin it around a little bit and then tilt it, well, now north's that way because it can't give a true reading. The other thing is... I don't have to get this out. This is a magnet. North just went that way. <laughs> well, that's an illustration of what I'm trying to talk about, trying to say here, is that our conscience is like a moral compass, but that compass can be distorted. The world distorts that compass. Our own flesh distorts that compass. And Satan is constantly trying to distort that moral compass that God has given us. So it does not always give a true reading. If you read through the scriptures on this subject of the, con- uh, of the conscience, you see the Bible talks about a good conscience in 1 Timothy 1.5. It talks about a clear conscience in 1 Timothy 3.19, it also talks about a weak conscience in 1 Corinthians 8.12. It, it talks about a seared conscience in 1 Timothy 4.2 and a defiled conscience in Titus 1.15 and then also an evil conscience in Hebrews 10.22. So our conscience can be desensitized or it can actually be made overly sensitive by being uninformed or misinformed. Sometimes we feel guilty about things we should not feel guilty about. That's what Paul calls a weak conscience. Other times we feel we do not feel guilty about things we should feel guilty about because our conscience has been seared or defiled. 
So what I want to say here today is that in a fallen world, we must guide our conscience and we must guard our conscience. Two things, we must guide our conscience and we must guard our conscience. Now, first of all, to guide our conscience, we must supplement that inward moral compass, that conscience, with the special revelation God has given to us in his word. We live in a fallen world. We have all these things that would get our conscience off track. So we need to keep it on track with the word of God. The scriptures are like a yardstick, an objective yardstick, which we can hold up to our conscience to see if we're measuring things correctly. In other words, we need to realize that our conscience is not infallible. God's given us an infallible word, but our conscience is not infallible. And we need to go by the word in order to guide our conscience. We have to test our conscience with a correct understanding of the scriptures. People have done things for conscience sake that they either need not have done, like being concerned about not eating meat sacrificed to idols, or they've done things for conscience sake that they should not have done. And Paul's an example of that. Before his conversion, he thought that he should oppose Christ and God's people. He was zealous for God, but it was a misguided zeal. It was a zeal not according to knowledge. He was doing something for conscience sake, but it was the wrong thing. Uh, Let's just look at uh, Acts 26.9. Paul's making his defense before Agrippa here, but just one verse, verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Why did he think that? Because he'd been brought up a Pharisee. He'd been taught these things that the Pharisees taught, and consequently he thought His conscience said, I need to get rid of these people. They're going against what's right. But but what was taught him as right was actually wrong, you see. Conscience judges according to the law known to it. Conscience judges according to the law known to it. Since the unbeliever's conscience has been separated from God, its original authority... The natural man can judge things only according to his interest, habit, parental teachings, school education, social environment, and by what is left of the moral conscience given by God. So that explains why Paul, wrongly instructed by his conscience, his wrongly instructed conscience actually made him think that he should be against Christ and against Christians. That's why he was so stubborn and fanatical. His upbringing as a Pharisee had caused him to think, caused his thinking to be distorted. And in obedience to a misguided conscience, he persecuted Christians. Now, I do think that deep down under that, there still was some of the conscience 
the true moral conscience that God had put there. Because when Jesus appears to him, he says, Saul, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard. You're going, you're going against something here you know is not right. Deep down you know this isn't right. You've been taught the wrong thing, but deep down I've been teaching you what's right. But this, this misguided conscience explains a lot of things. It explains why you would have suicide bombers today who actually think they're doing something good. They've been taught the wrong thing. So our conscience is not infallible. It needs to be educated. Continually educated. This is an ongoing thing with a correct understanding of God's word. Otherwise, our conscience could be insensitive, seared, the Bible says. That's that word uh, is actually cauterized. And that was a medical term that Paul was using for the burning of flesh or tissue which destroys its sensitivity. In other words, <clears throat> cauterization deadens that area. And he's saying that's what's happening. That what's happened to your conscience it can be cauterized. It can be deadened. <clears throat> Become insensitive. So it does not trouble us when we do something wrong. Or the conscience could be oversensitive and trouble us too much over something that, God, that does not matter to God. That's what was happening there uh, with those Christians <clears throat> who had come out of, out of idolatry and still thinking that they couldn't eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Our conscience must be informed through the disciplined, diligent study and I would say spiritual study of God's word. Paul told Timothy, from, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And he goes on and says, Be diligent to present yourself approved of God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So we need to... <clears throat> if we're going to have our conscience guide us, we need to guide our conscience through the word of God. <clears throat> but we also need to guard our conscience. Let's turn to Acts 24. This is Paul again making a defense of his ministry, and this time before Felix. But he says here, uh, this we'll start reading with verse 14. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, and there shall certainly be a resurrection both of the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, in view of what? Well, the fact that there's going to be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also, 
do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and man and men. Now that do my best, the literal there is actually practice myself. I also practice myself to maintain always a blameless conscience before both God and man. In other words, he's saying, I guard my conscience. Paul is on trial here before a Roman court of law in Caesarea when he makes this amazing statement. And he says, in light of the fact that there's going to be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, and we're going to stand before God, he said, in light of that fact, I guard my conscience. I t- the King James actually says, I take pains always to have a clear conscience. He knows someday he's going to stand before a greater court than he's standing before here with Felix. He's going to stand before the highest court of the whole universe. And so he practices himself to maintain a clear, blameless, clean conscience. And as a Christian, that's what we need to do too. We were given a clean conscience when we come to Christ. But we need to guard that conscience. We know that we have full and free forgiveness of our sins through Him. His heart has, His blood has sprinkled us. And we were sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. But He says, I also continually seek to guard that conscience, to maintain a clear conscience. How do we do that? Well, by walking in the light that we have. The Holy Spirit uses our conscience to convict us of sin and guilt and our need of forgiveness. And that's not just at conversion. That's as we walk. John Calvin said, The torture of a bad conscience is the hell of a living soul. The torture of a bad conscience is the hell of a living soul. Now he's talking about the torment a bad conscience can produce right in this life, like we saw there in in Macbeth. But as I thought about that quote, I think the guilty conscience may well be a large part of that future punishment in hell. Think of being cast into outer darkness with a guilty conscience and a clear view of every time you've gone against it. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans. He's talking about on the day when God shall judge the secrets of men's hearts. If a person will, will come to the place where they'll kill themselves over an evil conscience, think what it will be like in hell to 
be there with that evil conscience constantly before you and in you. So we must, as Paul said, practice ourselves to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and men. God commands us to keep faith and a good conscience. That's in 1 Timothy 1.19, which some have rejected and suffered shipwrecked in regards to their faith. If you don't keep a good conscience, you're headed towards shipwreck in regards to your faith. Paul says that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, again, how do we keep a good conscience? Well, first of all, we have to be a Christian. We have to be given a good conscience through the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart. You've got to own your guilt and then look to Christ as your sin bearer. You have to do just the opposite of what Pilate did at the trial there uh, when Christ was on trial before him. I might say the most unjust trial ever conducted in the history of the world. Instead of doing what Pilate tried to do at the trial where he takes some water and washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's not that easy, you see. It wasn't that easy for Lady Macbeth, and it wasn't that easy for Pilate either. He said, I'm taking this water. I'm innocent of this man's blood. But he let, he let the most unjust verdict ever given. He allowed that when they turned Christ over to those that would have him crucified. But I say we have to do just the opposite of that. We don't say I'm innocent of this man's blood. We acknowledge that Christ died the death we deserve. I'm not innocent of his blood. In fact, this man's blood was shed for me. So the first step in getting rid of guilt is acknowledging that we're guilty before a holy God. As, as David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. So that's how you gain a good conscience. But as Christians, we must maintain a good conscience. We do that by looking to Christ to keep us from sin and looking to Christ when we have sinned looking to Christ to keep us from sin and looking to Christ when we have sinned. If any man sinning, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Sometimes even as Christians who believe on Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we still feel guilty and condemned. That's often the work of Satan, the accuser of the brethren. What do we do then? Well, we stand on the Word of God. That's one of the main ways to guard your conscience. It's the way you guide your conscience, and it's also the way you guard your conscience. 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us, cleanses us from all sin. We take our stand, you see, on the word of God in those times when there's those guilt feelings, even for, the, for those who have looked to Christ for forgiveness. God says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Paul says, who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen, the elect? It's God who justifies. Who is, who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died. More than that, who is risen from the dead. He is at the right hand of God. He also intercedes for us. Isaiah says this. This is a good one, too, on, in those situations. Do not call to mind the former things, nor ponder the things of the past. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it will spring forth. God's done a new thing in your heart. You don't have to to pull up those things from the past. They've been covered by the blood of Christ. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That's, that's the way to get rid of that spot. As the song that we've learned recently says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So in closing, I would say this. We should thank God that we were made creatures with a conscience. It's a wonderful thing to have a conscience. A turtle doesn't have that. But God's made you in his image. You have a conscience. Thank God for it. And we should thank Christ for dying so that we can have a clear conscience. And we should ask the Holy Spirit each day to help us not to violate our own conscience or to trample on another believer's conscience. We need to have this attitude that Paul expressed when he said, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. If we don't do that, our life could be more tragic than Shakespeare and Shakespeare's Macbeth. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse your conscience. But as Christians, we know that we can draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's such a blessing. That's such a joy. God's made a way for each one of us, for our life, to be a triumph, not a tragedy. It's a new and living way that he's made in Christ And if you'll be honest with your conscience, he'll bring you to that. 
That's why he's put it there. It's not something to try to shun or deaden. It's something to embrace, to guide us, and, and we need to guard it. We need to realize that the scriptures are there to inform our conscience and just continue to keep that attitude of this conscience that I have is a precious gift and I need to never stifle it. Thoughts related to this thing of of guilt and our conscience.